Paul, I believe this time on your, your album, all the songs are not your own compositions for a change, are they? It's got eight of our songs, and the, the rest are... The rest, eight from 14, what's that? Nine, please. That's six. <laughs> <Do you mind? laughs> I'm not very good at counting. Six, so six. I see. six, six of course, yeah. six, yes. Eight and six. How many do you use? <clears throat> well, I didn't get that one. Who, <laughs> counting, didn't get counting. Who are the other numbers? Kansas City. Two Carl one. Perkins, Two one Little Richard, one Chuck Berry, nice. and one Dr. Feelgood, and that's the, that's the rest. Oh, right, so eight of your own compositions. Um, I've heard it said that, that a lot of these would make good singles. Do you think there's any likelihood at all of them being released? Well, actually, that way? one of them no. nearly was, you know. But the wrong but, one. Uh, anyway. But it, it wasn't as good as the single, we don't think, you know. But, but it, it was nearly you at can't one point. Singles off an LP after the LP's been out. Well, a lot of people do. Well, well in America they do. In America they do that, you know. Well, and it's a bit of a drag, yes. Yeah, it's a bit of a drag, that. My name's Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Craig Bartok. I'm Alan Cozen. The Beatles. Naked.
You know, Richard, when we were talking about doing this examination of Beatles for Sale, it dredged up a lot of things. Number one, this is like the Lost Beatles album for me. I never listened to this album in its original form until it came out on the CD in 87. Really? No interest in doing it. Why? You only had eight of the 14 tracks on Beatles 65. But we also had the weird part two, you know, because as John Lennon said on WNEW, I think the reason was greed. Uh, The part two, of course, was Beatles 6 or Beat Elvis if you're dyslexic like me. And yeah, it just always, it seemed like a throwaway. And I was partially, it seemed like even... Well, number one, I didn't have access to European albums when I was a kid. But when I got to teenage years and, you know, the the teenage Bible for a lot of us Beatle fans was the Beatles and Illustrated Record by, you know, Roy Carr and Tony Tyler. Right. I think their appraisal of the album colored my view of it for, you know, like I wasn't going to go dig it up the way I was going to dig up, say, a European Sgt. Pepper or, or something like that, you know. I mean, I have a lot of different feelings about this album. It's a weird album on a bunch of levels, and yet in one way, it's kind of like the precursor to Let It Be, in a strange way. I should say Get Back. They're digging up, you know, and resuscitating tracks they wrote as a kid and playing a bunch of oldies. And isn't that really what Get Back was all about? And and if you, uh, you know, one of the sessions that I connect emotionally with this album is when they did the... Larry Williams session, you know, for the American audience to finish off Beatles 6. And, you know, very simply recorded live tracks, kind of in a almost please please me fashion. It's just kind of this weird, it's like a get back album to me. And and it really, it I feel it's a hodgepodge that should have been two different projects. And uh, so I, I, I'm not particularly fond. I loved it as Beatles 65 because it's a much stronger lineup. Well, naturally. You would say that. Well, no, but you've got the you've got I feel fine on there. I can't believe that you waited until the late 80s to listen to the album as conceived by the Beatles. I mean, that's always my bottom line. I thought it was their weakest concept. It didn't feel like an album. It felt like an Elvis album. Yeah, but you didn't know that until the late 80s. You didn't even try. I could I only had to do is read about it and see the session. I mean, to me it's like, you know how Elvis used to record like he'd store up you know, he'd go into Nashville and record 50 songs or whatever, and then they'd make albums out of it. That's what this was. This isn't really an album. Yeah, but you didn't know, though. You didn't I could, listen I could to tell. it. I could tell. I could tell. Right. Know, I could tell also just by reading it and what, you know, I was I was totally brainwashed by Roy Carr. I believed everything he wrote, and I, I was, you know. And so once you did finally deign to listen to it, did you agree with what they said about it? I did. I thought it's the weakest. I, actually, I don't think they were harsh enough. I, it, it's got some great songs but it's to me, it's it is it absolutely is a snapshot of where those guys' lives were, and, and and it's so interesting that they do look a bit tired on the cover, because it's it's very rushed. They sort of had some sessions in the can from when they before they went out on tour, and now they're coming back to this pressure, not only of getting the single out and the album out for Christmas, but they got a big TV gig coming up on on Shindig, where they played three songs. They played. I'm a Loser, they played Kansas City, they played Boys. Two of those songs weren't out yet. And those were the debuts. And as a matter of fact, I know Jack Good apparently took some stick from the ABC execs going, well, you know, where's I Want to Hold Your Hand? You know, or something. That, what, what's this I'm a Loser? You know, they didn't, it didn't go over that well with the executives from what I remember uh, being told. 
So um, there's a lot of weird sort of hodgepodgey stuff. I've always thought that the Beatles, at least at that time in October, probably thought, okay, the single is going to be I'm a Loser and Kansas City. You know, we'll do the eight, we'll do the two sides of the single like they would normally do. I don't think it was like, oh, we haven't got anything for the next single. If you read Derek Taylor's sleeve notes for Beatles for Sale, he basically says there that they had many contenders. They had eight days a week, no reply, and I'm a loser. I, I personally think eight days a week would have been a fantastic single. And then John came up with I Feel Fine. So actually, there was heavy competition for that single. But how? Well, that's but right from the horse's mouth is you. You can hear John Lennon say, "I haven't. We haven't written it yet." So Derek Taylor was a was a PR man. Sometimes they haven't written a single, and then they do it in a day and go record it the next week. So that wouldn't have right. been right. Well, and that's what they, that's what they ended up doing. But but, but the, what about it, like you know things like a hard day's night or all you need is love? Those were all done at the last minute. And you'll notice how Lennon would deal with that later in his career. He would call it, he almost dis, dismissed it as writing to order, you know, like a short order cook or something. And I mean, if you listen to the Playboy tapes or whatever, it's that always amazed me when I first heard him kind of saying, well, yeah, it was like a contract job. You know, I, I had to come up with something. And, and yeah, it's, but, but I, I don't see um, Beatles for Sale as just being completely knocked out like that. Yes, we know they were on an amazing schedule, just excruciating, really, between radio and TV. They'd had to, you know, do a film. They'd done a concert tour. It was just nonstop press interviews, all of that. I actually think they did remarkably well. For me, Beatles for Sale is a great album. It, it starts off in fantastic style. It's got some weak tracks, and that makes it patchy for me. But I certainly wouldn't put it down as like, you know, just a, a throwaway album. I mean, Alan, help me here. What do you think? Um, I, I wouldn't call it a throwaway album either. In fact, actually, when Eric said that, I was thinking, wow, th this is the first time I've heard throwaway album and the Beatles in the same sentence. Well, um, maybe right. that because... was a poor choice of words. <laughs> go, go and wash your mouth out you with mean, soap, though. Eric. I mean, uh, to me, it's, I, I think, my second least favorite Beatles album after Let It Be. And so it also is interesting to me that you made the association between the Let It Be Get Back sessions and Do you know what this. I mean about that, though? I, I agree with you about I mean, and I don't feel Let It Be is my, my least favorite Beatles album, but, but do you, you do see the connection or am I just... Well, I see the connection, but I think it's a little ahistorical because um, really this is their fourth album and the first two also had the same proportion of covers to originals as this right. one. So it, it wasn't right. that unusual for them at the time. Really Hard Day's Night was the unusual one, but then after Beatles for Sale, it became the usual one. I mean, I think there was like... But a, when did the Beatles ever regress? You know what I mean? Like to me that once they'd hit that beautiful watermark with the right. quality of a hard day's night now they're going backwards right and that's why i also see it as kind of a, a tired album i mean it seems a tired album to me in a number of ways and one of them is because as eric just said when did they ever regress they had a whole album's worth of originals on uh, Hard Day's Night, and it was one track short, but they also had put out an EP that had I Call Your Name, so they, you got your 14 original songs there. Well, and you've, you've also got No Reply, which was actually demoed on June the 3rd, 64, which was the day that Ringo collapsed with his throat problems. So they, they demoed that. Who knows if that was intended for Hard Day's Night? The sessions were complete. 
but it was sort of held over. Beatles for sale. It's the Beatles, so how bad really can it be? Um, I don't think it's one of their strongest efforts. It's definitely not a worthy follow-up to A Hard Day's Night. I wouldn't say that the band is tired because the playing and the singing is very energetic, but the music is tired. The fact that they did so many covers, there's a few pretty badly out-of-tune guitars. That's just me as a musician noticing it, but it's funny, but I've noticed it ever since I was a kid. Um, I kind of look at this album the way the Beach Boys did, um, did the party album. It was Brian's way of buying himself time between summer days and summer nights and getting um, pet sounds ready. He needed to buy that extra time. Unfortunately, the Beatles didn't have that luxury and had to put something out. So we have Beatles for sale. There's a lot of good to be said about it and a lot not so good to be said about it. It, it seems like it's an accountant's move. We have this obligation for the single. We have this obligation for the album. Oh, by the way, there's an EP market that we could satisfy. And it just seems to me that everything else was always an album. I mean, Rubber Soul was not a collection of, to me, was not a collection of sessions that got stitched together. It, it was a concept record, as was everything to come, as was, in a sense, Our Hard Day's Night. It was a concept of, let's we got to get this new medium that we're conquering film. When we don't know we're going to conquer it yet, we're going to give it everything we got. It seemed to me that this is that weird, murky period where, um, except for, I think, Maggie May, this is really around the last time that, well, of course, that session with Larry Williams. It's the last time they're going to do covers. You know, They don't feel the need to do that uh, on Rubber Right. Soul. I don't know that they, it's a step backwards. I don't see it as regression. I see it as maybe them treading water. And I see the same actually with the Help album, you know, because we expect now in retrospect, we look back and we see these leaps and bounds, okay, from one album to the next. And there's no giant leap from Hard Day's Night to Beatles for Sale, or for that matter, from Beatles for Sale to Help. But there is to Rubber Soul. So those two albums, I think, get a little bit short change. I think they're both fine albums. The tiredness, I mean, of the front cover, you know, Roy Carr and Tony Tyler said, don't those faces look a little tired, I think, in the caption. No, I mean, I don't think they showed up at Hyde Park exhausted. You know, I'm sure they were smiling and laughing as usual. It's just how it was captured on camera. I think it's a beautiful shot. But it's I, a beautiful... Not... Oh, the photograph is beautiful, and a, and a version of that session... An outtake from that ended up um, on the early Beatles album. You know, Capitol uh, finally put out the Please Please Me record, you know, to for fun and profit, as they say, um, using sort of an outtake picture of it. No, I think the, fi- the picture is beautiful. And I remember uh, getting the album eventually just because the gatefold was beautiful, you know. Uh, but I never, I, it just didn't, as I say, it, it, it maybe water treading is the kindest way to put it but there's beautiful songs on it don't don't get i mean no reply is one of my favorite beatles songs i love well, it i mean look at how they start it they start with no reply i'm a loser babies in black a bit rock morose. and roll you know rock and roll music which i think is a blistering take on that and i'll follow the sun then we get to mr moonlight which Oof. a lot of people including me have an issue with Oof. but then they close with kansas city start the next side with eight days a week i mean to me, there's just one bum track in there. Yeah. Um, 
You know, it's funny. Uh, I don't hear it really so much as a hodgepodge. Uh, I mean, it's no more of a hodgepodge than with the Beatles, right? It's really, in a way, no more of a hodgepodge than Rubber Soul, which, um, to me, I I find thematically unified. Um, But what this has that holds it together, I think, is, um, well, partly that sense of tiredness. And, and as I was starting to say, it's, it's, it's partly because they had gone from all originals to returning to the early formula with covers. Um, but also because, I mean, the, a lot of the originals are a little on the downside. I mean, no reply. He's chasing after this woman who he's discovered is cheating on him. I'm a loser is, you know, I'm a loser. Babies in black is kind of down too. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, to me, what ties this album together musically is it has a very s- strong um, country or rockabilly undercurrent. I mean, apart from having things like Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby and Honey Don't, you know, two Carl Perkins songs, uh, I'll Follow the Sun has a sort of countryish feeling. Um, every Little Thing has a sort of countryish feeling. But you, what you have all through this album is George doing his sort of rockabilly thing on guitar. You hear these little lead lines that are part of the texture i mean apart from the solos but it's like you know you know these little little chordal or single note things that are just you know really textural and that to me you know is part of that rockabilly thing that he was doing i mean he continued it a bit on rubber soul i mean what goes on i think is probably the best example of of him doing that and he does it in act naturally but here it's you know there's a bit of it on almost everything not absolutely everything but almost well yeah i mean he's really in chet atkins mode isn't he on this album george and and i think he actually sounds most comfortable on this album as a guitarist quite honestly it seems it's set i mean i don't know you know how much he had to work on it but it sounds to me like it's coming to him naturally right and with the covers i mean you know when they return to the covers on during the Get Back, Let It Be sessions, you know, they hadn't really played those songs for a really long time. But the covers here, I mean, we're only talking about two years since their last Hamburg gig, um, where they played this kind of thing. And and, and some of these specifically, I mean, Mr. Moonlight was in that last year at uh, at Hamburg. Uh, And they were still playing them on the BBC. So... It may not be, you know, entirely slumming as we would hear it now. You know, it's like, oh, we don't have stuff. Let's do some covers, which is, you know, probably partly true. Um, but it was it was still sort of under their fingers, I think, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. One thing that a listener in Italy, mate of mine, Lorenzo De Luca, suggested was changing the running order and actually having one side originals and the other side almost like back to Hamburg with with the rock and roll covers. And he's getting at something I would have proposed for this whole thing, actually. Think about it this way. They could have put out an incredibly strong EP with just the originals. And for the Christmas market, they could have put out an album, a collection of Beatles oldies, and have it all covers. It's hard to look at the album in its totality, the way it's sequenced. Um, I like to look at it as two separate albums, their original compositions and their covers. 
Okay, let me go straight to the tracks that, personally, I'm not crazy on. Mr. Moonlight, Honey Don't, and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. I know a lot of people like that one. I'm not crazy on it. And how about... I was going to say, I like it better live than I do in the studio. But how about replacing, you know, actually holding over the Long Tall Sally EP and taking those tracks and putting them on here so that you do have, as Alan said, I Call Your Name, maybe instead of What You're Doing. Um, And then you could pull in Slow Down, Long Tall Sally, and Matchbox, even instead of Honey Don't. I would have done, as I say, I would have taken No Reply, I'm a Loser, I'll Follow the Sun, and I Call Your Name, and made that an EP, and then made an oldies record with, with doing just what you say, because Long Tall Sally is so strong, it deserved to have been on an album. Um, and, and made a, like you say, a Back to Hamburg or a, a collection of Beatles oldies but goodies, except not have it, you know, have it just covers. I think that I would have seen as, okay, this is a thought-out, you know, okay, we're under pressure. We don't have time to write enough originals, or we're not confident enough at the at the ones that are unfinished right now. But here's a here's a defined thing. It's kind of like what they did a few years later with Magical Mystery Tour. You know, double EP. It wasn't enough for an album in their estimation. So use the EP format to create like an incredible EP, and do a bunch of oldies to fill the gap. And I, I think I would have had more respect for it that way. That's all, because it just to me, it's just. It's just a patchwork. It's just it's some great a couple of great songs. I, I agree with you that Mr. Moonlight could be lost somehow. I, you know, it really just doesn't work for me. Hold on, hold on. A couple of great songs. Which yeah. are the, which are, which are the couple of great songs? No reply, and I'm a loser. Really? Yeah. So you you don't rate eight days a week or rock and roll music. Well, rock and roll or, music's a cover. They didn't write that. It's a great performance, but it's that's what I'm talking about is the originals now. Okay, so what about Eight Days a Week? It's not one of my favorite Beatles songs. I think it could have fit on A Hard Day's Night, but I think No Reply is like it's got this whole samba thing going on. It seems like more of an adult record. It's this dark, moody thing. And it's almost like a conscious... It's it's not a giant put-down. It's just not one of my favorite songs. You know, it was... A, it was you know, certainly you couldn't get away from it in the U.S. It was a very popular song here. Yeah, and what about another downer track that I think is fabulous and I love the middle eight on it is I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. Yeah, I, I do like that one. And and maybe that's an oversight on my part. Maybe that can go on the EP too. That's generous. Be- I don't think I would change. I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to approach that because, um, you know, to me, Beatles albums are what they were. And... Um, I, I also like Beatles 65. Beatles 65, they did have the foresight to include I'll Be Back, I Feel Fine and She's a Woman, which really, really helped the album out quite a bit. This is one of the few times where I think America got the better deal, like um, the energy from Meet the Beatles as opposed to With the Beatles and starting off with I Want to Hold Your Hand. I mean, it was like, wow, the energy was just there from from the second you put it on. And, you know, when you're a kid and listening to your albums in mono and you just put it on, you just want to hear that energy. And um, it won't be long, had a lot of great energy, but it certainly wasn't I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was on the charts at the same time. They were smart by putting these extra, including these extra songs on, on Beatles 65. It just made sense. I think looking at it from the other side of the pond and and 
and, and being a little bit more objective and saying, well, we have this wealth of material that we've been holding back. We can make this album even stronger. It was a good move on Capitol's part, and the songs that they added definitely benefited the totality of the album. See, that, I was going to say, I love that album, and that, that's where the, the thing across the ocean becomes a problem. Yeah, uh, but the running order, you know, to the degree that it's the same album or, or similar album is is really kind of similar. It opens with no reply, you know, that, that's a great opening. No reply, take one. One, two, three, four, one. This happened once before, but I can't do your door. I 
you're not home That's a lie Cause I know where you've been I saw you walking Your door This is really a gem of a song and probably one of the shining moments on the album. It's really a interesting, well-thought-out song, well-recorded. It's got some interesting chord changes in it. Yeah. I've always loved this song. I like I Saw the Light where in those those parts where they have the overdubs and um, they accent everything. And um, it's really, really probably one of the best songs uh, on the album. Just a really great effort by all four guys. I don't know if it's high energy enough for an opener. I, I would have maybe had eight days a week. I think eight days a week could be a great opener, and a fade-in is kind of an unusual thing, but I think certainly in those days, people wanted an LP to open with, you know, all the sound right there, and no reply does that. You know, it's 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 just the voice for a couple of seconds, but, you know. Uh, but I also do think that no reply is actually a really kind of dramatic track. Yeah, it um, is. If if you think about, I mean, just the the instrumental arrangement of it, backing the vocals, you know, uh, you you get up to, I saw the light, and you know, suddenly, you know, he's not only sort of screaming it, but it's got this sort of cymbal crash punctuation, and then the next verse, I nearly died, has the same thing, you know, that's kind of a uh, an interesting in a way, new touch in their writing. And it's telling a story. It's telling a story that's, you know, I don't think we would have thought of it in those, at that time as stalkerish, but like, it's really stalkerish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is. And it's got the, I, one of the things I love about it is this, it's, it's, the best way I could describe it is a childhood impression that still sticks in my mind is it sounded like adult music. And what I mean by that is that sort of samba shuffle thing going on underneath it reminded me of, you know, some of my mother's records. And and just as a kid, and I remember that intrigued me that, like, the Beatles were making music. I, I felt that again with Sgt. Pepper, this idea that, you know, they're making, you know, with when I'm 64, mm-hmm. uh, an adult would like this. So I, I always thought that was, yeah, a really, it's a very strong track. You're going to love this. If we are just rearranging these... 14 tracks i would have started with rock and roll music huh yeah that's another high one. energy yeah. kaboom and right it was off a the set top. opener for them later so kind of makes yeah. sense the thing about no reply you said alan you know drama is in there and that's in quite a few of the tracks one thing i think it's quite strong on their compositions on this album are the bridge sections mm-hmm. i think they've got quite a few really cool bridge sections you know with John and Paul harmonize, or as you say, there's some kind of drama and impact to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. So that takes us to I'm a Loser, which I think is a superb track, and it could have been a single. I don't think it's as strong as I Feel Fine, 
but I do think it's it's a fine song and it's of course Lennon being introspective not for the first time on Please Please Me we'd had There's a Place mm-hmm. um, but this kind of takes it to another level doesn't it and it's really I think it's the laugh and act like a clown you know beneath this mask I'm wearing a frown that's the the main thing that people clue into as being sort of you know, introspection and being a bit of a downer. I don't think the whole song is. Right. In the Lennon-McCartney rockabilly world, I think it really shines. I mean, that's not something that they did that much. I mean, they kind of left that more to George to do. Um, but it's a great song, and um, it's one of the last times we really get a chance to hear John really play a really great harmonica part. It's got a couple of tricky guitar things in the intro. Um, one time I was picking it apart with a friend and looking at the actual two guitar parts. I would say uh, it's it's a really, really good song. It's a strong Beatles song, and it holds up. I'm a loser, take one. One, two, one, two. Okay, that's really good. Because I'll stop on the one, two, because that's where you'll come in with the mouth. One, one, two, one, two. That's, that's all right. Two. One, two, one, two. I'm a loser of all the love I have won or have lost. There is one love I should never have crossed. She was a girl in a million, my friend. I should have known she would win in the end. I'm a loser, 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 I'm a loser. Well, there's a frayed edge for you. <laughs> Take three. Here we go. Okay, George. I'm a loser, <laughs> and I've lost someone wow. who's near to me. I'm a loser, oh. and I'm not banana dead. Okay. <clears throat> oh. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Of all the love I have won or have lost, there is one love I should never have crossed. She was a girl in a million. My friend, I should have known she would win in the end. I'm a loser, and I'm not what I appear. Oh, sorry, sorry. Take five. Can I put it there? Can you do it? And I lost them. Because you've only got to come in now, and then it's just. Yeah. I'm just all uncomfy, yeah. I've only got to be reminded of it. Okay. Okay. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Of all the love. Why? Take six. Appear to be popped like a Oh. I'm a loser. I'm a loser 
And I'm not what I appear to be Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed She was a girl in a million, my friend I should have known I would lose in the end I'm a loser And I lost someone who's near to me I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be Although I laugh and I act like a clown Beneath this mask I am wearing a frown My tears are falling like rain from the sky Is it for her or myself that I cry? I'm a loser And I lost someone who's near to me I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be I done to deserve such a fate I realize I have left it too late And so it's true pride comes before a fall I'm telling you so that you won't lose all I'm a loser And I lost someone who's near to me I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be I see this song as part one of help. This is, you know, confessional... You know, how can a guy that's just conquered America, conquered Australia, and the thing that pops into his head to write a song about is what a loser he is? I, I found this really powerful. Even as a kid, I remember being kind of confused by the message and thinking, this is like, these are the coolest people on the planet. What, how could he possibly crawl inside the head of us regular people? But later, you know. But were people really tuning into that in 1964? Weren't they just hearing, oh, no, I don't weren't they so. just hearing it as another love lost song, basically? I think probably similar to what the Kinks were writing or something where you'd say, oh, how could, how could Ray write all these songs about loneliness? And then you figure out later on, well, the guy was really a lonely guy and he had issues. And, but it's, later on, I think the song took on even more power um, because Lennon said, you know, obviously this is how he was feeling. But do you, do you see a connection to help or is that yeah. just me? And also Nowhere Man. Yeah. The confessional, the confessional Lennon, you know, and um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it would have made a great single. I love the instrumentals on this. I love, you know, the harmonica and uh, the country guitar playing. I think it's really tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit of influence of Hey Baby in there, right? You know, I agree with you, Craig. This is the last time that we ever hear John play harmonica, I think. Well, Mr. Kite. <laughs> There's a Oh, that, but that's, but that's, that's not really harmonica. harmonica as we know it from here. Rocky Raccoon? I take it all back. And don't forget Oh Yoko. <laughs> oh. Well, that's later. <laughs> I had forgotten it until you just mentioned it. Now, what about 
Babies in Black, which comes next. That's the third track on the album. Another original. Another downer, another morose, uh, you know. Uh, oh, God, some Liverpool musician explained this to me one time many, many years ago that this was like a funerary, you know, it's the Beatles version of Painted Black or something. And that and Yes It Is were these, you know, songs about a, gr a woman grieving for a dead lover and kind of ignoring the protagonist. And uh, so I find it powerful. And and, uh, and obviously Lennon liked it enough and they liked it enough to to do it in, in concert. And I think I think it was a... a, a a very interesting choice for a concert piece. And beautiful harmonies between John and Paul. Yes, and maybe that's why. And and obviously they enjoyed playing it. If you ever watch the films, a lot of times, you know, especially on the last tour, Paul's waltzing, uh -huh, you know, with his uh -huh. bass, which is kind of, it's kind of a nice visual. Oh dear, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? So she dresses in black And though he'll never come back She's dressed in black Oh dear, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue Tell me, oh, what can I do? I think of her But she thinks only of him And though it's only a whim Things of him. Oh, how long will it take till she sees the mistake she has made? Dear, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? Dressed in black Oh dear, what can I do? Baby's in black And I'm feeling blue Tell me, oh, what can I do? I have to confess, I've never been a big fan of this song. Yeah, I know it's in a 3-4 waltz time, and it's dark, and it's an interesting subject matter for a ballad. To me, it kind of misses the mark. It's good, but it's not great. I mean, she thinks of him, and though it's only a whim, she thinks of him. It's a well-executed song, but like I would give no reply an A if I was grading, and I would give I'm a Loser like a B plus, and Babies in Black to me is just a C. You know, three, four-time songs in rock are far less plentiful than songs in four. And so Babies in Black always sort of like 
stands out partly because it's in Walt's time. Um, also, it's, uh, it's as you said, Richard, the bridges on this album. This has an incredible bridge too. You know, yes. oh, how long will it take? That it like kicks into yet another high drama, almost melodramatic um, section there. Oh, how long will it take till she sees the mistake? You know, um, and beautifully harmonized. And uh, you know, it it is kind of a downer, and it is kind of weird because of the the opening guitar thing is sort of you know the all the note bending you kind of flirts with out of tuneness um it may even be actually out of tune but i don't rate it as poorly as craig yeah, yeah. i disagree with craig yeah. on that one. it's there and if you love it you love it and if you don't then that's okay too okay so next rock and roll music i absolutely love this i've been surprised to see mixed opinions about it online but uh, i think it's phenomenal you know i think it's another twist and shout if you like in terms of just capturing it and i know that derek taylor again in the sleeve notes alludes to the fact that george martin joins john and paul on piano and i always had this visual of that until mark lewison in his recording sessions book said nope it's actually just george martin on the piano Mm mm-hmm it's the energy in John's voice. It's oh. there's a very peculiar quality to it where you can, to me, I can hear him having fun. It's almost like the little giggle in the stereo version of "Please Please Me," you know, where I, I to me at least, it sounds like he's actually enjoying himself massively doing this song. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it, it's got a backbeat you can't lose it. Kick against modern jazz Unless you try to play it too darn fast I lose the beauty of the melody Until it sounded like a symphony That's why I go for that rock and roll music Any old way you choose it It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it Any old time you use it It's gotta be rock roll music If you wanna dance with me They had a jubilee Them Georgia folks, they had a jamboree They're drinking homebrew from a wooden cup The folks are dancing, they got all shook up I started playing that rock and roll music Any old time you use it It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it Any old time you use it Gotta be rock and roll music If you wanna dance with me don't get to hear them play a tango And in the mood they take a mambo It's way too early for the Congo So keep a rockin' that piano That's why I go for that rock and roll music Any old time you use it 
extremely energetic, really great. John obviously had a big heart for Chuck Berry music, and he did a great job covering it. John's voice is very enthusiastic, and, you know, it's just a tried-and-true cover. They, they did it live numerous times, and John always nailed it. As a matter of fact, they used to open up their shows with it. So it's a good, safe bet. It's a good cover. Certainly doesn't offend anybody. It's the Beatles, and with John's voice, anytime he rocks and sings a Chuck Berry song, I have to say, I mean, I'm in for that. Like Hamburg Revisited. Not that I was ever there. Well, so in a way, this album has two of those because Mr. Moonlight, I mean, if we're talking just about John's vocal, is is similarly powerful. I personally think it rips the original to shreds. I, I way prefer it over Chuck Berry's version. Yeah, it's, it's really, it, it is more exciting. And I think the piano does help it in this case. Like, I, I love the live version. You know, it, it actually, in 66, when they used it as the truncated version as an opener, there was a very specific function that I've discovered over time, which is the, the last, you know, everyone's going nuts when the Beatles come out on stage. The last chord of, uh, of rock and roll music is the first chord of She's a Woman when they did it live. Mm-hmm. So, if, you know, a lot of times they're kind of so lost, you know, with the sound that it was just kind of convenient for that to, one to go to the next. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, what a great recording. And um, I, only, I wish they had done the long version uh, on the 66 tour live. I agree. I'll follow the sun. I personally absolutely love this track. I don't think it gets the credit it deserves. I mean, you know, we've heard how it evolved. We've got the spring 1960 home rehearsal at the McCartney house. You know, that version, which has got a different b- bridge section, which we'll play here. Um, and I think, you know, they just improve on it once it gets to Beatles for sale. This whole kind of thing that, well, you know, they didn't have enough original material set to reach back into the past. So what? I mean, what a fantastic track to reach back to. And I I love the acoustic guitar playing on it. I love everything about it. One day you'll look to see I've gone For tomorrow may rain so I'll follow the sun Someday you'll know I was the one But tomorrow may rain So I'll follow the sun And now the time has come And so my love I must go And though I lose a friend But tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. Yeah, tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. And now the time has come, and so my love, I must go. And though I in the end you will know oh 
I love the part of anthology as well, which shows them in Miami in 64, which is a bit anachronistic maybe, but uh, it has, you know, footage of them and photos of them in Miami, and it's set to I'll Follow the Sun. Beautiful segment. I love the song too, and I think about it as this, if you let your, if you don't identify it so strongly with this record, this one could have slotted onto Revolver, as far as I'm concerned. It kind of, there's something about it that sounds very introspective and, a little sad, even though it's kind of, you know, it's not the jaunty arrangement that it started as, obviously. was a little more of a vaudeville track you know it's 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 totally different in character yeah you can see like how greatly they improved it you know and i mean what better songwriters they were in 64 than they were in 60 you know to know exactly which parts of the 1960 version to just chuck out and replace with something new it goes from a jaunty feel to a sort of wistful feel doesn't it right yeah yeah that song always sounded to me like what it is. It sounds like a early McCartney composition that was resurrected because they needed it. You know, it's funny because I was just talking to our bass player, Andy Stoller, about it. And we said if any other artist would have written a song like that, we would have been blown away by at that period. But since the bar has been raised so much higher, it being the Beatles that it feels like what it is. It feels like an early McCartney composition. And an early McCartney composition is a hell of a lot better than other people's contemporary or current compositions at that time. Yeah. So that's why it's kind of hard to put it. When you put it through the filter or the lens of the Beatles, then you tend to critique things a little bit more because the bar is raised so much higher um, one note about that is I mentioned earlier that 
there's a few guitars that are, seem to be out of tune in this um, song. And um, this is one that the, the rhythm guitar, especially during, for tomorrow may rain. So I'll follow the sun. And now the time has come. And so my love, I must go. And though I lose a friend, in the end you will know. The guitar that's in the background, they could have spent a little bit more time actually tuning the guitar. It's pretty rare that Beatle songs have guitars that are out of tune, but this happens to be one of the few. Well, that brings us to everybody's favorite. It's like fantastic opening by Lennon, mm-hmm. and then the pancake goes flat. The pancake goes flat because of the um, instrumentation and, and and the way. You mean the fairground organ? No, oh, the organ. I mean, I I, I think <laughs> that is the one thing everybody agrees on is a mistake. I have to say, John is giving it the best effort he can possibly give it. 
I don't like the song at all. I really, really dislike the organ solo. The only thing that saves this song for me is hearing John just belting it out. It's probably the reason that I wouldn't hit the skip button and go to the next track. It's a place mark. It's a filler, and once again, it's what defines this album as being what it is. Probably not one of their greatest albums, but it's still the Beatles, and you still have to own it. And uh, you're definitely not going to pass it by. I don't know. It's just corny to me. The whole thing is corny. It's like, just give me the opening and then on to the next track. Yeah, you know, that, you're right. That would have been a great, yeah. like, just Lennon do the screaming and then go, oh, no, let's do Kansas City, you know, or something like that, and then go into Kansas City. Or, or so actually, let's go into Leave My Kitten Alone. Yeah, really. I mean, I, I can't understand why having those two tracks to choose from, they chose Mr. Moonlight. But It's messy. It's a messy recording. I think that they probably realized it too. Mr. Talk, I'm gonna get you. 
John's voice is double-tracked, and it's not double-tracked very well because it's a rock song. And back in those days, they didn't stop and they didn't punch in every line to, to learn every inflection. So you just got John singing it, and then they go back and then they double-track it. And then if it's off a little bit pitch-wise or it's off a little bit time-wise, that's just the way it is. I don't know. It, that kind of goes over my head a bit, to be honest with you. It's got so much energy, so much rawness. A thousand times out of a thousand chances, I would take Leave My Kitten Alone over Mr. Moonlight, I think. Uh, one of the weird things about Mr. Moonlight is it, it almost sounds like they barged into a... Uh, a Roy Orbison recording session, you know, and like took it over. It's like, it doesn't sound like a Beatles record. And part of that is that, you know, the rhythm track as well as kind of, you know, like you say, corny is a good word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, if Mr. Moonlight had been gotten rid of, (laughs) then it might be in the same position that Leave My Kitten was in all these years where sort of we had heard about it, but hadn't heard it and would be dying to hear this track. Yeah, but once we heard it, wouldn't we be saying what's happening with that organ that's why they didn't include it yeah we probably would yeah it would have been like how (laughs) how many how many times you know we had heard about um that means a lot for years and then when we finally heard the 20 different versions and none of them work it's kind of like okay i i've never really revisited that pile of outtakes i'm sure you haven't well the thing is i think again most of us tend to agree with the decisions and the choices that the Beatles made throughout their career in terms of the tracks, you know, to include or exclude. Mr. Moonlight is a notable exception. And Kitten, in Absolutely. terms of the excluding. It's an okay song, and I can see why they left it off. It's uh, it's okay, but not not great. And we expect greatness from the Beatles. Kansas City, which strangely, you know, for years was only listed as Kansas City, omitting the hey 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 little richard you know which comes at the end as a sort of coda um surprised they even got away with that but uh again i'm surprised to see some people online saying don't particularly like kansas city find it sloppy i think it's fantastic absolutely love it and i love paul's vocal and the sort of you know the response backing vocals
I think once the acetate came out of, you know, the flip side of, of some other guy at the cavern, you know, that's my favorite version of Kansas City nowadays is I, I love the idea that it's alive at the Cavern Club. And, and you can see that this is obviously the son of that only a couple of years later. Um, and that obviously that's an arrangement that, um, you know, Paul and the band really had fun doing. I mean, they seem to always be having fun. Uh, I can kind of tell in the vocal or something. So uh, and when you see the outtakes, def- they, they, they're definitely having a good time doing it with Jack Good. Um there's a little bit of them doing it in um, in some of the outtakes from the Cavern Club footage. Uh, you know, it's it's just something that was obviously dear to them, and so it's infectious to me that way, even if it's obviously not completely original. And and I personally way prefer it to the Wilbur Harrison original. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I, there's something about that I've never been particularly fond of. I think this has a lot more energy. I kind of lean towards those people who are saying not totally crazy about it. I love Paul's vocal on it. It's like up there almost in the Long Tall Sally realm. But um, the track as a whole just sounds a little strangely antiseptic to me. I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, if it came on, I wouldn't turn it off. But um, it it just doesn't strike me as uh, among the best of the covers here. And not as bad as Mr. Moonlight but I think it would be a second to that for me. Well, yeah, wow. that, I'm really, see, that really surprises me because, yeah, because when I hear... Because it just sounds sort of flat. I mean, listen to the intro, you know? I mean, here is where perhaps Dave Dexter <laughs> could have really helped it with some reverb. In fact, undoubtedly did on Beatle 65. It's been a while since I've heard it, but, um, you know, it just sounds it just sounds flat to me. That's really interesting because me, when I hear it, like if I'm in the car or whatever and I hear Kansas City, hey, 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 it just grabs me right from the start. And, you know, we want to sing along with it when it gets to those backing vocals. And, and, and so distinctive as with a lot of backing vocals, John's voice, you can hear it's John. And there he is with George in, you know, that call and response. It's like, wow, we're at the Star Club. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually the lead track for uh, Beatles 6. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it it didn't make it didn't make Beatles sixty five. It was the it was the lead off ah. track. So well, Dave Dexter was still probably adding reverb to it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if his tombstone has Dave Dexter extra extra. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. Kansas City. It's good. You know, it certainly doesn't have the energy of a song, cover like Money or Twist and Shout. Um, it's much drier sounding. They tended to stay away from reverb very very dry and i always liked it it feels like it's kind of like hey we need a song let's do it and it works but not as well as other covers that they have done in the past Um, one thing i always found interesting about this song a side note is um when they performed it i believe on shindig um i could never figure out why and richard i believe you and i have discussed this before but yeah it sounds like they're playing live, and it looks like they're playing live. And I got a pretty good eye for that sort of thing. But when they get to the, hey, 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 and they got the answering, that sounds like it's pre-recorded. So I'm wondering whether if they went actually went back in and sweetened up the audio for that particular thing, because it, it sounds like it's double-tracked, and you can see that 
clearly they're not all singing. The thing, Craig, about Shindig, you got to understand, is it was a Jack Good production. Jack Good was quite an innovator, and the way he did his programs was unique. Um, he didn't want to be necessarily encumbered. He wanted a live performance. He didn't want people miming. But uh, he did want a live performance, so what he would do, which was quite unique, he did it with Around the Beatles, he did it with Shindig, and, and a lot of his acts would do this. The band would record live in the studio and do sometimes backing vocals with that as well, and then that would be recorded. The band would then, I guess sometimes they'd take the wires away from the guitars so they didn't trip over each other, and they would sing live miming to the track they just did in the studio. So that's why if you see, you know, Around the Beatles is a good example of it, because I don't think there's any guitar wire. There's no, you know, it's, they're, they're singing live to, you know, an instrumental track. Yeah. Then we're moving on to Eight Days a Week. Great pop song. It worked. It's got the hand claps. It's got the energy. It's got that typical Lennon-McCartney harmony. It's simple, but it works. It's not their greatest hit song, they're their greatest pop song, but it's pretty pretty damn good, and I can't say anything bad about this song. It fits in with this album perfectly. Mm-hmm. From this point on, it wouldn't have fit. It definitely would have fit on a previous album. It might have worked fine on as a, um, as a filler on A Hard Day's Night, but once again, it's a good song. I would have opened the album with it, to be honest with you, and it would have been a single. Mm-hmm. It's just so high energy. I find it infectious. Mm-hmm. I think it's just one of the great tracks on Beatles for sale. Well, you know, I mean, that that is a track that gets onto every Beatles compilation just about, you know. Uh, it was on, I, I'm sure it was on the Red Album. I'm sure it was on one. I mean, we, we know that it was on the video one because they synced it to Shea Stadium footage of all things where they didn't play it. But um, it's interesting, know, it's, actually, that they didn't perform it live. It, it is interesting because yeah. it seems like something that would have been perfect live. And, and to tell you the truth, and, and I've said before, this is not necessarily my favorite Beatles record, but I would have called the album eight days a week because it would have been more reflective of where they were. They were working their ass off and seemingly eight days mm-hmm. a week. And that, yeah. I thought it would have made a, a less cynical title than Beatles for Sale. Um, and, and more effective. Mm. Like, hey, we're working our ass off. We're still working for you. Look at all this stuff we got for you. A whole new album. Presto. Yeah, you still yeah. wonder about that album title, actually, now that you mention it, Eric. Beatles for Sale. What does it actually mean? What was it intended to convey? What, to me, it's like confessional. It reinforces this concept I have of it being a hodgepodge album. It's, it's, it seemed a very strange title. Like, why would you come up with that? I mean, you know, if you're trying to say... The Beatles are just a great saleable, you know, anything they do will be turned to gold, I guess. That's kind of a cynical statement. If you can just say, hey, you know, uh, it's Christmas time, Beatles for sale. It, it just, it seems, once again, why I don't particularly care for the for this compilation of songs. I have to be very specific, because I absolutely love Beatles 65, and it's the same record with a few changes. Yeah, but I mean, that's not much of a title, is it? Beatles 65, especially for a collection of songs that, that were dreadful. recorded. Yes, dreadful. Yeah, between 11th of August and 26th of October 64 and released in the UK at the start of December. That was more of a cultural American thing, I think, at the time. And, and I, I'm sure Alan can back me up. We'll try. In that mid-60s period, there was a manner of speech that went around in the US where, I mean, everything was about new and what was happening next year. You know, people... People very you know, turned mm-hmm. in their cars every two years, and there was a lot of stuff that was 
this is uh, Dragnet 68. You know, this is, you know what I'm talking about, Alan? Like, everything was, this is the Amana Radar Range 66, you know, and Brazil 66. You know, it, it was, this was like a thing to attach, a, you know, the last two digits of, of the date. And and so that I think that would have, that was an accountant's move, I'm sure. And I, you can tell when Lennon would make fun of it at the concerts, you know, Beatles 88 or whatever it is, I haven't got it. Yeah. Wasn't Capital's treatment of the Beatles an accountant's move from start to finish? Until they put their foot down, it's certainly you certainly can make an account, uh, make a, a case for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So next, another one that gets mixed reviews. Words of Love, which I, it's one that if it you know had to get rid of more tracks, maybe that one would go. But I actually quite like it, and I do prefer it to the Buddy Holly original, which is more in a minor key. I think that's got a more downbeat feel, the Buddy Holly original to the Beatles version. It's a guilty pleasure. I love it. Hold me close and tell me how you feel Tell me love is real Soft and true Darling, I love you This is one of those songs on the album I can do without. They do a good job of it, but it sounds like they're trying to be someone else. It sounds like, yes, they're paying tribute to Buddy Holly, and yes, they're doing the harmonies. It doesn't necessarily sound like the Beatles to me. It sounds like a British band doing a cover of a Buddy Holly song, and maybe that's what they intended it to be. But it's the Beatles, so you want to hear the Beatles spin on everything. I mean, the, the Beatles spin on Twist and Shout or Money or You Really Got a Hold on Me is just like, you know, I, oftentimes I enjoy that better than the original. I couldn't say that I would necessarily enjoy the Beatles' version of Words of Love over Buddy Holly's in this case. It's a place marker, as a few things are on this album. It's like, okay, it kills two and a half, three minutes. 
of time, and they knew it, and it was a safe thing for them to do. I know a lot of people don't like it, but I actually adore it. It's, um, it's one of my favorite of the Beatles covers. I like it too, and, and, and to me, it, it seems to be continued in a way on every little thing. For some reason, I think of those two songs as so similar. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think Words of Love is, is, is a good cover, and it is a lot brighter than the Buddy Holly one. And, right. you know, given that uh, I think probably by then we kind of knew that Buddy Holly was in the Beatles' DNA, you know, someone that they liked, someone whose vocal style they liked. I, I think it um, it works out really well as a, you know, this is this John and Paul doing it are sort of like the Everly Brothers doing Buddy Holly, and it all seems to sort of fit as a look back at their roots in a way, uh, which, after all, all the covers here really are. Yeah. So then we get to Honey Don't, which for me is another dud. Um, I, I, you know, I, I actually prefer Living in Hope. I think, but, uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I would absolutely have replaced this. I'd have held over Matchbox. If you're going to do Carl Perkins, you know, have, have Matchbox in there. Not great, but with the double tracking and everything, it just sounds stronger to me. It sounds like a stronger track. I think it should have been left a BBC goodie. Uh, it seems like the BBC recordings have more energy. Than the studio of this one, and so, not to mention you got John singing it on, on, on one of them. The yeah. Piece. Well, how come you say you will when you won't? Say you do, baby, when you don't. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth now, is love real? But I'm uh on. -uh. Well, honey, don't. I say you will when you won't, uh, uh honey, don't. Well, I love you, baby, and you ought to know. I like the way that you wear your clothes. Everything about you is the doggone sweet. You got that sand all over your feet, but uh, uh well, honey, don't. Honey, don't. Honey, don't. Honey, don't. Honey, don't. I say you will when you won't. Ah, uh ah, -uh, honey, don't. Ah, oh, rock on, George. One time for me. Time. 
This is kind of your typical Ringo throwaway at the time. It certainly fits in with the rockabilly theme for the album, like I'm a loser and everybody's trying to be my baby. So the rockabilly thing works. Ringo does a fine job, gets a passing grade again. Mm -hmm. These are the things that make it be not a special Beatle album, but just another in the series of Beatle albums, like a stepping stone onto the next project. What about just getting rid of Ringo's track altogether and having, you know, slow down? No, you got to have a Ringo track. What about the Ringo fans? I mean, you got to remember the time period that people would be outraged in a sense. There's no Ringo song. They had just done that, right? There was no Ringo song on, unless you count this boy. Well, so then no one would have known. Oh, no, I, I'm sure. I'm sure the Ringo people were up in arms. You know, I kind of like it, but um, what I like in it is George's guitar playing. Um, right. So because I like that so much, and because I think Ringo is kind of charismatic as a singer on stuff like this, uh, you know, even having heard John do it on the BBC, uh, I I think it's a, a perfectly okay track. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't hold it up as one of my favorites from this album, but I um, I think it works, and I think that really George's little little guitar detailing is kind of what makes it work. I mean, it's almost as if I'm not listening to the song. I'm just listening to George, you know, picking away these little fills and things. Mm. Now, what about Every Little Thing? That, to me, again, it's okay. If it wasn't on the album, we'd all be saying why, but it's not one of their great songs, but it's okay. It's one that didn't get played to death, so I actually really like Every Little Thing, and it, it was used to close out Beatles 6, which I always remembered as a kid, that I thought it was kind of neat how it faded away. Um, mm. No, it's a, that's actually another guilty pleasure. When I'm walking beside her People tell me I'm lucky Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy I remember the first time I was lonely without her Can't stop thinking about her now Every little thing she does She does for me, yeah And you know the thing she does She does for me, ooh When I'm with her I'm happy just to know that she loves me Yes, I know that she loves me now There is one thing I'm sure of I will love her forever For I know love will never die Every little thing she does She does for me, yeah And you know She does. 
You know, it feels like it's a good song, but it feels like Lennon and McCartney are phoning it in. They're not working on all cylinders on this song. It's an interesting song, as proven by when Yes did a cover of it on one of their earlier albums. They turned it into this crazy sort of progressive rock thing. You know, it's got the timpanis in it. Um, and once again, this is one of the songs where I hear the 12-string bit out of tune. And I think they could have spent a little more time with that. I like the way the harmonies break off, the Lennon-McCartney harmonies. And they, 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 they go for fifths instead of thirds, which is always very cool. A trick that they learned from the Everly Brothers. Once again, it's good, not great. And I think it's part of what makes this album to be sort of like tired in the sense that as an album it's tired, but not as performers, if that makes any sense. Well, I think that Yes's version kind of shows, uh, you know, the possibilities in that song if it was a, a band entirely different than the kind of thing the Beatles did. Uh, the song still has some stuff worth exploring. For me 
I don't want to spoil the party. I know you never do, but you can't help yourself, can you? I know. Underrated song. Love it. Um, I Yeah, I, so do I. I. I think it's just such an unusual... Uh, and once again, what mood was Lennon in around this period? You know, just it, it just seems so downtrodden and like, oh, I'm, I'm the... I'm a loser, I'm spoiling the party. I think they could have done a medley almost when they were live of babies in black into I don't want to spoil the party. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been a great idea. I mean, it's, it's just so interesting. Why was he so morose in this period? I mean, they've just conquered the world. I mean, without question. The biggest thing in the world. Because he was tired. Yeah, and he, he also says in the old grey whistle test, that I you know, often go into these troughs of depression. I was in one in help. You know, he was obviously getting there. He was going towards yeah. help, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't want to spoil the party so I'll go I would hate my disappointment to show There's nothing for me here So I will disappear If she turns up while I'm gone Please let me know I've had a drink or two and I don't care There's no fun in what I do when she's not there I wonder what went wrong I've waited far too long I think I'll take a walk and look for her Though tonight she's made me sad I still love her If I find her I'll be glad Disappointment to show There's nothing for me here So I will disappear If she turns up while I'm gone Please let me know harmonies on that song i love the guitar work as well i think it's a superb song as you said eric i think it's underrated and very much an original beatles rockabilly number you know what i mean kind of it's got a rockabilly (laughs) feel to me you know but but with that sardonic edge and that introspection i i just think it's a pretty advanced and pretty interesting song you know i've never got tired of hearing that one once again didn't get overplayed you know because it's not everybody's favorite but I, I sure love it. Yeah, it's one that I'm not absolutely crazy about. Um, but again, like like all these tracks, I mean, there's always something in it that 
is right. worth focusing on. And here again, the guitar, George's guitar. Um, you know, I think I, I'm not sure, you know, the gazillion and a half times that I've listened to this album, I'm not sure that I focused as much on George's guitar until recently. In fact, even just giving it a spin a couple of times in stereo and mono yesterday, preparing for the show, um, just George's guitar jumped out at me on a lot of these songs more than it probably ever has. And then uh, on the other hand, it's not like I would listen to the guitar parts and say, wow, I never heard that before. I mean, it was always there, but um, I, I'm just sort of appreciating it in a different way. And I don't want to spoil the party, which is, is a track that I normally in years past might've skipped. Um, I think I now have more something more to focus on, but as you say, I mean, Eric, it, it's like, okay, no reply. I'm a loser. Baby's in black. I don't want to spoil the party. It is yet another downer. And then on the other hand, you know, in a way, what's the alternative? You know, I mean, they've had I Want to Hold Your Hand, and they've kind of outgrown that. They had She Loves You, which was a totally different sort of approach, but they couldn't do that for every song. Um, and especially since they're gravitating towards country music. Did I say gravitating? Gravitating. <laughs> Gravitoising. Yeah. Since, since they're gravitating towards country music on this album more than anything else, um, you know, those are often songs about, you know, losing love rather than, you know, triumphing. Um, mm. So it, it just kind of makes sense, but you would think that there'd be something a bit brighter and well there is there's eight days a week and that's why eight yeah. days a week almost doesn't seem to fit on this album well when it comes to george's guitar playing and i'm really focusing on his electric guitar not necessarily acoustic guitar playing he had sort of three areas that we can focus on one would be probably where he shined the best where he would come up with little hooks and little riffs in between verses and choruses and he would actually structure a riff or a guitar solo when he had that luxury and had the time to do it. Um, it's really quite astounding how well he could do that. Uh, secondly would be sort of the rockabilly thing that he flirted with earlier on in the earlier part of the Beatles. and. Um, I Don't Want to Spoil the Party is a really, really good example of the way he uses his, um, the way he uses the lower notes and he sort of, um, sort of arpeggiates the strings as opposed to just playing a single note, which is, um, you know, good rockabilly players can use their thumb and their fingers and sort of simulate the sound of a couple of guitar players playing together and George did a pretty convincing job of that. One thing too is the actual sound of the guitar. Um, in those early days when he was using his Gretsch, his Country Gentleman and his Tennessean, those guitars just lend themselves to that style of music. The tone of the guitar really has something to do with the fact that it sounds so unique and so rockabilly. And probably lastly, when George's, uh, when you talk about George's ability, probably he had the hardest time of just being able to just freeform and solo and, and jam like, like his buddy Eric Clapton could do. And Eric Clapton, interesting enough, wasn't, in my opinion, as good at coming up with like 
like actual riffs and um, and hooky parts within songs. He was more of a freeform guitar player, which is probably why he was much better suited for playing a longer solo, like in While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Hmm. So what about What You're Doing? Again, it's an okay song. I think that's why this album does get a bit of a bad rap, is because it doesn't rise to their usual standard. It might be fine for another artist, but by their standards, it doesn't rise to great. I don't find this as yeah. much of a song at all. I think it's a riff in a great uh, vocal performance by McCartney, but it's kind of a riff that had nowhere to go. And I, I don't, you know, that whole like unison shout vocal thing, uh, it's kind of cheesy for me. This this is the one I hit skip on all the time. Take it, Evan. Don't do it when we're singing. Don't do it while one, you're playing. One, two, three, four. <laughs> What you doing? I'm feeling blue and lonely. Would it be too much to ask of you what you're doing to me? You got me running, and there's no fun in it. Not when it seems so much to ask of you what you're doing to me. What you're gonna do And should you need A love that's true It's me Please Stop your lying You Got me crying Girl, why should it be so much To ask of you What you're doing To me you're doing I'm feeling blue and lonely would it be too much to ask of you what you're doing to me what you're doing to me what you're doing to me Once again, this feels like a McCartney strong trying to write a hit song type of thing that just misses the mark, but it's still really good because it's the Beatles and it's Paul McCartney. It sounds like it has all the earmarks of a hit song, but since the bar has been raised so much higher, it falls short of that. I kind of like this one um one of the things i like about it is the sort of variety of textures that ringo's bringing to it i mean he has a couple of moments like right out in the open there and in a way that's another thing there's a bunch of on this album that I, I neglected to mention for instance when we talked about every little thing you know you've got every little thing she does Boom, boom, it's a combination of Ringo's drums and the piano. Without the piano, just the drums wouldn't have been it, you know, wouldn't have quite done it. 
and without the drums the piano wouldn't have quite done it but together it's kind of an interesting sound you know every little thing she does boom boom she does for me boom boom uh it's uh, that's kind of that dramatic thing i was talking about earlier with no reply and and some of the others uh and there's a bit of that in what you're doing it's not quite as dramatic but uh, you know, the, the, the fact that Ringo is out there in a way shaping the song, you know, more overtly than he does a lot of the time. I mean, he, he, he does amazing stuff almost all the time, but you don't necessarily have your attention drawn to it. But in what you're doing, it, it's there. I mean, because there are some just sort of little solo interludes. And... Uh, Otherwise, you know, I mean, it's an okay lyric. It seems to work. Uh, what you're doing doesn't entirely rhyme with blue and lonely, but you know, there <laughs> you you don't often run into in the Beatles era um, lyric issues that you would say, hmm, that's a little bit sloppy, you know, and yeah. at least not until altogether now when counting became a line. At times, McCartney followed formulas he wasn't necessarily out there leading. He was sort of following a formula that was working at the time and seeing if it worked. And just due to the fact that it's got Paul's and John's voices on it, it's it's great in that sense. But we all know that they can do better than that. So under normal circumstances, it would be a B plus. But it being the Beatles, you know, I'd have to drop it down to like a C plus or a B minus just because we're talking about probably the two greatest pop or rock songwriters in the history of music here. You know, just because they're tired and just because they, they're under a time crunch, unfortunately, we look back at it 50 years later, 50 some odd years later, and yeah, yeah, we give them some slack for that, but the casual listener who happens to buy the entire Beatle catalog on iTunes in their 20s may not understand all that aspect and go, well, you know, it's a good song, but I prefer listening to something on Hard Day's Night or something, you know, something like Day Tripper or something like that. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up and they called it me. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Woke up last night, half past four. Fifth women knocking on my door. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Last night, I did say late for a home I had a 19 day. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now.
last night They didn't stay late For a home had a 19 date Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Well, they took some honey from a tree Dressed it up and they call it me Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Naff Closer. I'm not a rockabilly <laughs> fan, I have to say that up front. Mm-hmm. This song probably is not one of my favorite rockabilly songs. It, it, it's, an, it's an average song. It's not one that I would like, I would just rate up there as like one of my all-time favorite rockabilly songs. Um, so therefore, with the limited capacity or the, the, the amount that they had to work with as far as the creative level of the song goes, I think they did a decent job. Once again, it's a bit of a place marker, and um, it works in context for this album. I just don't, um, you know, once again, it's like you're, you're looking at like a, an average. This is a passing score. You give it a C. It's not brilliant. It's not innovative. So we expect more from the Beatles. When we've had tracks like Twist and Shout closing the album and uh, Money and things like that, and here we go out with Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, why not go out with Long Tall Sally? Well, you're kind of making my point. That's one of the reasons I don't like the, the record very much. I loved this song live when George would do it, but somehow um, doesn't seem all of that interesting as a studio recording. I, I would have rather heard them encourage George to come up with an original well, of course, back on June the 3rd when they demoed No Reply, you know what else they demoed that day. When I see you, I just don't know what to say. I like to be with you every hour of the day. So if you want me, just like I need you, you know what to do. You could have had a George original on this album. I, that, That's right. Yeah. They well, obviously they didn't encourage him very much, so uh, he knew he what, knew to, what do. to do. I think you know, in terms of uh, this thing that I hadn't considered until we started talking, which was the reordering of the album. Um, I was thinking first that maybe rock and roll music would be a good closer, but I don't think so. I think it would be a better opener than closer. But I would move down. I don't want to spoil the party to after everybody's trying to be my baby and close with that i mean it sort of thematically works i don't want to spoil the party so i'll go it's the last track on the record that's true but don't you think they should have gone out with a rocker whether it was kansas city or long tall sally something like kansas city i think you know if we're sticking to this 14 songs these 14 songs yeah i think kansas city would have been a better closer at least a little more upbeat but i i agree uh, since the, the tone of the originals is so dark, it is kind of a nice way to close with 
I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. And they are going. Mm -hmm. I know that the album is the album, and they had that thing in England about not putting the singles on the albums. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing we haven't discussed. What about I Feel Fine and She's a Woman could have gone on the album? And both excellent songs. I Feel Fine is great. That is the single. They had an uncanny ability to find the real pearl and put it out there. And um, they definitely did it. The way it uh, starts off with the uh, feedback is quite interesting. Um, Heart, in an album called Jupiter's Darling, we did the same intro with The Oldest Story in the World, a song that Nancy Wilson and I wrote. Um, we happened to be sitting around one day in a very well-equipped, lush studio in Seattle, which shall remain nameless, and it had a plethora of equipment, of vintage equipment, and they had a Vox AC100 amplifier and a, a Gibson J160 laying around. And during a lunch break, I mentioned to Nancy, I said, these are the exact same instruments that the Beatles had used for that song. And we happened to be watching the anthology DVD during lunch. And so we went out there and we tried it, and um, we got pretty much the same effect by putting the guitar up to the amplifier and just letting it sort of feed back. We tried it about seven or eight times until we got it to work properly and then just edited it into the front of the song. Beatles, obviously, back in those days, didn't have Pro Tools and the luxury to try something like that. They could have done it to tape and edit it, but it wouldn't have been quite as smooth as what we achieved. Um, Ringo's drum beat, the cha-cha sort of bossa nova beat, was very, very clever, and it's, it's a hook in itself right there. An excellent, excellent song, and it's all ingrained in our memories for good reason. It belongs there. And again, they could have actually started the album with that, right? Come in with the feedback. Would have been great, which they should have done. That's why I like Beatles 65 better. <laughs> oh, God, you and Beatles 65. <laughs> She's a woman. I like it. I can't say that it's ever been one of my favorites. McCartney had a tendency to write a lot of rock songs with a strong emphasis with the guitar, accentuating on the two and the four. This song always felt like it was a little underproduced to me. It felt like it could have had more energy than what it really had. It's, I would like to have heard more an energy like I'm Down or something, even though I'm Down is a much faster song. McCartney's 2-4 thing would be like um, Can't Buy Me Love. Um, he's, he put like in the, the Say you don't want no diamond rings. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And it's like, she's a woman who don't. Two, three, four, two. So he puts a lot of heavy guitar accents on the two and four. And it works, but you can only do it so many times when it starts to sound like it's being recycled. But once again, it's the Beatles. It's great. Paul delivers an excellent vocal. I always love the one missing accent. Every time I've always just jammed with friends and played it, we always miss that one guitar that's in there. And we always look at each other and we smile knowingly because we're Beatle nerds and that's what we do. I really like She's a Woman. I, I think where Paul's trying to go with that, it's, it's kind of like the embryonic stage of... I'm down. 
Well, yeah, I'm down, and then and then later uh, got to get you into my life. It's like Paul kind of experimenting with his own Paulish R and B, uh, and 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 quite successfully, I think. I I really I love it live too. It was a great live track. It's never one of my favorites, I have to say, but I feel fine. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic killer. song. But Craig also makes a good point when he he says that one of the things that makes Beatles 65 in some ways a better album is that it does include I Feel Fine, She's a Woman, and I'll Be Back. Um, I'll Be Back, the last track on The British Hard Day's Night, to me has that... You mean The Real Hard Day's Night? Yeah, yeah, real yes, Day's night. The Real Hard Day's Night. But I'll Be Back does have that sort of melancholy feeling that yeah. this album has. It, it seems to be almost pointing in the direction of of Beatles for Sale, and it fits perfectly with this stuff on Beatles 65. Um, Plus, you get the tracks that were the single, and I know, you know, they had a policy, blah, blah, blah. But often the singles, well, not often, the singles were always really good tracks. And, uh, you know, it's a pity that because Capital put them on, they had to lose a couple of others and then had to lose a couple of others in addition because of the copyright and royalty issue in the U.S., um, where, you know, 12 was as much royalty as Capital wanted to pay for songwriting on an album. But um, but but Beatles 65, with those two songs on it, I think makes it better. I, I should say, um, once when, I can't remember which book he was researching, but once Mark Lewison was in New York doing some research and he was staying at my place and I was playing him various video and audio and, and whatever. And he was looking through my records and he said, you know, I've never really listened to the American Beatles albums should play me one that is like a huge difference. And because Beatles 65 and especially I feel fine and she's a woman are just laden with reverb um (laughs) i put that on and the look on his face was so horrified (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but just as a track as a track or a track list um a playlist as they'd say now i think beetle 65 is is really a pretty good album going along with the narrative that you two have been advancing I suppose it's a shame that they didn't hold back Misery. They could have put that on this album. They even called, <laughs> there it, you go. called it Beatles Misery. The Beatles bum out. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the sleeve notes as well, because I, you know, I don't want to finish a show without actually going to Derek Taylor's fantastic sleeve notes. I mean, yes, full of hyperbole, but still, listen to this. This is the fourth by the four. Please please me with the Beatles. Hard Day's Night. That's three. Now... Beatles for sale. The young men themselves aren't for sale. Money, noisy though it is, doesn't talk that loud. But you can buy this album. You probably have. Unless you're just browsing, in which case don't leave any dirty thumbprints on the sleeve. (laughs) It isn't all currency or current, though. There's priceless history between these covers. None of us is getting any younger. When, in a generation or so, a radioactive, cigar-smoking child picnicking on Saturn asks you what the Beatle affair was all about, did you actually know them? Don't try to explain all about the long hair and the screams. Just play the child a few tracks from this album and he'll probably understand what it was all about. 
the kids of AD 2000 will draw from the music much the same sense of well-being and warmth as we do today. For the magic of the Beatles is, I suspect, timeless and ageless. It has broken all frontiers and barriers. It has cut through differences of race, age and class. It is adored by the world. This album has some lovely samples of Beatle music. It has, for instance, eight new titles wrought by the incomparable John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And, mingling with the new, there are six numbers culled from the rhythmic wealth of the past extraordinary decade. Pieces like Kansas City and rock and roll music. Marvellous. Many hours and hard days nights of devoted industry went into the production of this album. It isn't a pot-boiling, quick-sale, any-old-thing-will-do-for-Christmas mixture. At least three of the Lennon-McCartney songs were seriously considered as single releases until John popped up with I Feel Fine. These three were Eight Days a Week, No Reply and I'm a Loser. Each would have topped the charts, but as it is, they are an adornment to this LP and a lesson to other artists. As on other albums, the Beatles have tossed in far more value than the market usually demands. There are few gimmicks or recording tricks, though for effect the Beatles and their recording manager George Martin have slipped in some novelties. Like Paul on Hammond organ to introduce drama into Mr Moonlight, which also, and for the first time, has George Harrison applying a thump to an elderly African drum because Ringo was busy elsewhere in the studio playing bongos. George's thump remains on the track. The bongos were later dropped. Ringo plays timpani in Every Little Thing, and on the rock and roll music track, George Martin joins John and Paul on one piano. On Words of Love, Ringo plays a packing case. Beyond this, it is straightforward 1964 disc making, quite the best of its kind in the world. There is little or nothing on the album which cannot be reproduced on stage, which is, as students and critics of pop music know, not always the case. Here it is then. The best album yet, quite definitely, says John, Paul, George and Ringo, full of everything which made the four the biggest attraction the world has ever known, full of raw John and melodic Paul, a number from George and a bonus from Ringo. For those who like to know who does precisely what, there are details alongside each title. That's a fair piece of writing, isn't it? He's always been a wonderful read, though I methinks he's trying to sell too much Uh, you know this isn't just a slapdash christmas job well i don't know i think it's i think when we say something isn't sometimes we're really saying it is you know how about paul on hammond organ introducing drama into mr moonlight drama is one way of looking at that (laughs) this was by no means the best of their four albums to date i mean this that is absolute hype yeah so um it does it contain the elements that you know uh, sum up the four boys at that point yes of course it does you know it's got their roots it's though though the songwriting and the mood of the originals is so much more down than the joyous stuff you know eight days a week notwithstanding i do love though how he does project forward he sees the value of this for, for history not that there's only just history in the songs but that they're creating history. He's got a very strong sense of that. At the time, I'm sure a lot of people would have laughed that off and thought they're not going to be around in a couple of years. But those words were prophetic. I think he was very, very aware. It almost, maybe it was the majesty of the U.S. tour. I think he got it faster than everybody else that this was a unique thing. 
It wasn't going to be like Sinatra. There wasn't going to be another Beatles. I think he was saying stuff like that pretty early on. Derek being such a flowery, interesting soul, I think he, um, I think he saw the future. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are things like the, you know, uh, his praise of the organ on Mr. Moonlight and um, things like, uh, you know, we already went through who was playing piano on rock and roll music. So there may be a couple of little glitches in here, but, um, you know, I've always loved Derek's writing. Um, You know, I've read all of his books and, uh, you know, had the opportunity to interview him a few times, too, which is, you know, in person, he's just like his writing. Um, And, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, one could possibly say a better sleeve note than this one deserves. But uh, I I think it's part of this one, you know, and and, uh, you know, with listening to Derek, you almost want to believe you almost want to believe that it is their best album yet but you know it's not um it's just you know that you overlook because that's the job of a liner note writer at this point you know um although oddly enough it was in the gatefold not on the back cover Um, right now With, with a photo that kind of foreshadowed pepper i thought yeah but I guess, I don't know, in British record stores, they didn't have shrink wrap, That's right. right. So you could have opened it. So, yeah. so you could open it and read it. and, and Get your grimy it. fingerprints on it. They could trust us there, you see. That's yeah. right. See, here, yeah, at, yeah. here at the good old USA, we steal everything that isn't nailed down. Five. 
is uh, take six. Seven, take seven. by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok.
came to put an album together, we did not include the singles in it. I think if I have a favourite on the album, it is Paul's song of I'll Follow the Sun. One day you'll find that I have gone But tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun Musically, we were learning a lot. You know, this is where we learned a lot of the music and putting together some of the uh, arrangements and things. You know, we were quite quick in the studio when you think about it. Two songs in three hours. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. It was only after the first year that they started getting really interested in studio techniques. They always wanted to get the thing right, so it wasn't a one-take operation. They would listen to it and they'd do two or three takes until they got it pretty well right. I thought they came in one early and you were saying one more. Well, actually, I thought you were still having lunch. <laughs> well, how come you say you will when you won't? Say you do, baby, when you don't. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth, how is love real? But uh-huh, well, honey, don't. The things like Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, we'd played live so much we just had to get a sound on that and just do it but things like babies in black well that was like learn the songs and rehearse them and i think we were beginning to do a little bit of overdubbing in those days it's probably a four track take seven we goofed man because i think of her but she thinks only of him no it's only a whim she thinks of him her name is jim muppet okay as soon as you hear jim one, you're in <clears throat> one two three one two three <laughs> Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? I used to go out to John's house in Weybridge uh, to write songs. And at that particular time, I had been uh, busted for speeding. So I had to have a driver to take me out there. And we were chatting on the way. I remember saying to the guy, well, how have you been? You know, you've been busy? And he said, oh, yeah, mate. He said, I've been working eight days a week. And then went into John's house and said, right, I've got the title, eight days a week. And we wrote it there and then. Ain't got nothing but love, Eight days a week. The rehearsal would go on in the studio because uh, from very early on, a lot of the songs weren't finished. The ideas were there for the songs or the first verse or a chorus, but it, it could be changed by the writers as we were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, far out there, Mrs. Starkey. Ah, Kansas City. 